Parashas Vayishlach ends off with a list of Esav's descendants, and then we get to Parashas Vayeshev about Yaakov and his family, and Chazal tell us it's like a person who's sifting through the sand in order to find a diamond, and then he discards all of the junk and he focuses on the diamond. And we're going to analyze that. Firstly, how Rashi expresses this mushal a little differently to the Medrash, but also the idea that gives the implication of sifting through the sand as if those were earlier generations and then finding the diamond, where the truth is that Yaakov and Esav lived in the same generation. And so effect effectively it's going to teach us that the process of being Jewish is to sift through the world of Esav, which is the Gashmistika world, a world of sand that conceals in order to find the Ruchnistika holy meaning of life, which is ultimately the diamond. So Smichas Parash HaParashas Ben Parashas Vayeshev, Shebo Maschab L'Shen Rashi Sipur Yeshuvah Yaakov, so when you look at the proximity of the two parishes, Vayeshev, which Rashi says describes Yaakov and his family's sojourns, and how that links to the conclusion of Parashas Vayishlach, which is about Sipur about the different sojourns or the settlements of Esav and his family, including the kings of Edom and the generals of Esav's descendants, the proximity of the two is explained, explained in the following Moshal of Chazal. Moshal of Melech. It's like a parable of a king. He had a diamond that had been cast inside the sand and between stones. So the king had to scrounge around and go through the sand and go through the stones to be able to extract the diamond that's lying over there in the rough. As soon as the king gets to that point where he finds what he's looking for, he finds the diamond. Then he leaves the sand and the stones aside and obviously he pays his attention to the diamond. So, and so effectively what Chazal are telling us is that you cannot get to the point where you discuss the descendants of Yaakov and his family and their journeys and so forth until you've at least briefly gone through Esau and his story, that's the, the sand, and then you get to the, the real value. And similarly, the Medrash points out you have a precedent as well. The Torah runs through the ten generations from Adam to Noach and then focuses on Noach, who's like the diamond. And you find a similar thing to the ten generations from Noach to Avram. We rush through them and then we get to the diamond, which is Avram. You see that the Torah just quickly lists them all together without getting into detail. And when the Torah reaches the diamonds, Avram, Yitzchak, Ve'yak, and then Hitzchak, Ve'yak, and then the Torah goes into a lot of detail about them. So now, with Tzorich Lahovim, we have to understand that the Moshul doesn't seem to work out logically, because the Chera Moshul Enem Matim Linyoneinu, the Moshul actually works better with Noach and Avram than it works with Yaakov and Esau, because B'dugmois, Hanal, those examples, there's a time period between Adam and Noach, a time period of ten generations, Right? The ten generations the same thing from Noach Avram. There's a gap. So it's logical. The Torah has to tell us who lived between Adam and Noach. Briefly tell us, and then get to the main person, which is Noach. Briefly tell us who lived between Noach and Avram. Get to the main person, who's Avram. El Noach Avram. 
just like in the story where you're looking through the sand, looking through the sand, then eventually you reach the diamonds. You go through this generation, this generation, that. Eventually you get to the diamond, there's Noach. Eventually you get to the diamond, there's Avram. But that doesn't make logical sense with Yaakov because he is Yitzchak's son, as is Esau. So why do you have to go looking through Esau and his whole family? Yitzchak goes to Yaakov straight, without a gap. There's no ten generations, there's not even a single generation. So who needs to look elsewhere in order to find Yaakov? Yaakov's right there, straight after Yitzchak, you get Yaakov. This doesn't seem to make sense. Now, we do know that there's certain incidents of Esau's life that are also involved with Yaakov's life. For example, most famously or infamously, of course, the brachas that Yitzchak wanted to give to Esau and gave to Yaakov. So, okay, maybe there you could logically say that you've got to separate between the dust of Esau and the diamond of Yaakov. So there you could say, Look at the story of the brachas. So you, you, what do you see at first? Esav is the one who's supposed to get the brachas. And Yaakov's hidden like the diamond that is hidden inside the sand. And you have to reveal it and say, actually, he's the one who needs to get the brachas. That would make sense. That would actually make logical sense. Tell me the story of Esav so that I know how you get to the part about Yaakov. That's logical. Makes sense. I can understand why the Torah would do it. Even when you get to the end of Vayishlach, where it tells us that Esau settles down permanently in Harseir, you could say like the Maharal comments in Gurariyeh, that to know where Esau settles is actually relevant to knowing the story of Yaakov settling. That it's specifically after Esau conquered Seir and then took that at his, as his place, then what happens? Now Esau's out of the picture of Israel. So therefore that's relevant to Yaakov's story because now Now Yaakov becomes the sole heir to Eretz Yisrael because Esau's gone, he's emigrated, he's, he's relinquished his rights to Eretz Yisrael. So it is relevant to Yaakov's story. Which actually, if you think about it, is one of the, the core points of telling us the story of Yaakov's uh, settlements. Because the whole point is, as Rashi points out, to tell us all the different permutations of Yaakov's descendants until eventually they would settle permanently in Eretz Yisrael. So that part is relevant. Okay, so we have some parts of the story of Esau that are relevant to the story of Yaakov, and you could say you've got to wade through those stories in order to get to Yaakov, like going through sifting the sand in order to get the diamond. Okay, look, the, the fact is, that's not enough of a compelling reason to say this is like going through the sand in order to find a diamond. Because remember that the moshal is, there is a diamond inside the sand, hidden in the sand, and you have to look through the sand in order to find a diamond. Whereas if we're talking about the fact that Esau and Yaakov are both involved in the same story of the Brochus, or Esau settling in Seir gives the green light to Yaakov that he's now the sole heir to Eretz Yisrael, that's not digging through Esau's story in order to find Yaakov's diamond. Stories that happen to be linked. The most you could say about it is that there's a mixing of the two stories. They kind of relate and interweave with each other. 
Ben Yaakov im Esav ve'inyan ha'yishuv. That there's a link between Esav's settlement and Yaakov's settlement. But it would be a bit far-fetched to say that Yaakov's story, like, for example, Yaakov getting to Eretz Yisrael, is hidden inside Esav's story of getting Seir. That doesn't make, make sense. Until to fit the marshal, you'd actually have to dig through and search in the sand and then discover them inside Esav's settlement. doesn't make any sense. But besides that, in Yisrael, the truth is, there's a much stronger question over here. The Pasuk tells us many details about Esav's descendants and who the leaders were of the various states of that, or stages of that um, dynasty, and where they lived. Including the kings of Edom, including the kings of Edom that preceded Shalom Melech, the first king of Israel. In other words, the Torah is predicting and describing a period of time over many generations all the way to Shola Melech. And then, not only that, but the Torah even goes into the details of those leaders of Esav that took over when the king dynasty of Esav ceased. That's got nothing to do with Yaakov settling or, or, or his story. That's Esau's story. Yaakov and Esau confront each other now in, in our parashas, but not, all those generations till Shola Melech, it's irrelevant. So that's very weird. And in addition to that, there are a whole lot of different specifics in both the Medrash and as we'll see in Rashi's language that need to be explained. So we also need to explain as follows. There are a number of details in the Moshal that we have to understand how are they relevant in the Nimshal. Some of them are as follows. Why is it important to make mention of the fact that there is sand and stones? How does that translate into the Nimshal? If the Nimshal is all about that you sift through the dirt in order to find the meaning, great. But why do I have to know that it's sand and stones? Number two, Why is it important for us to know that level of emphasis when the king finds the diamond, he puts aside the sand and the stones and focuses on the diamond? Isn't that not self-explanatory? It's logical. Once you find the diamond, that's what you focus on. You don't have to be told now, guess what? Once he found the diamond, he put aside the sand and the stones. So therefore, the Medrash could have just simply said, When the king reached the diamond, then he focused on the diamond. The fact that Adafka says that he ignored at that point the sand and the stones, that emphasizes something for us. That even after discovering the diamond, in the language of, the, of Chazal, when he reaches the diamond, there's still another step. It's not good enough just to find the diamond. Now you actually have to put aside the sand and put aside the stones, and only then will you have access to the diamond. Why? Furthermore, we already in many occasions have discussed the fact that that Rashi doesn't only simply tell us the Pshat, but he also alludes to fascinating elements of the explanation of a Pasuk. 
So the fact that Rashi quotes this Medrash but then changes the language, that must be part of this fascinating insights into the Pasuk. So let's have a look at Rashi's explanation and see what fascinating insights we get. Again, Umayhem, we'll look at three of them. Aleph. Instead of quoting like the Medrash that says he kind of fiddled his way through the sand in order to get to the diamond, Rashi says that not only did he go through the sand, but he sifted it through a sieve. The truth is the Medrash uses that expression elsewhere in a different place where the same Moshal is brought. Uh, except that over there, the, the Medrash uses a completely different style of language altogether. And it's weird that Rashi only extracts out of that other Medrash this detail of using a sieve, rather than using the entire style of how the Medrash talks about it over there. Okay, so why is the sieve relevant to us? Number two, base. Ah, Rashi also, like the Medrash, makes reference both to sand and to stones, but there's a big distinction with Rashi. He does it differently. Initially, he only mentions the sand, where he says that the diamond fell into the sand, and therefore the king is feeling his way through the sand. When he gets to the end of the Moshul, when he finds the diamond, then Rashi only speaks about stones. He says he threw away the stones. And he doesn't say anything about the sand. What happened to the sand? And thirdly, lastly, here also, the end of the Moshul, we see that Rashi uses different language to the Medrash. He talks about throwing away the stones as opposed to the Medrash, where the Medrash said he ignores or leaves the stones. So why is Rashi emphasizing that he throws away the stones? Now, let's start first with the question of what happened to the sand that he doesn't mention it by the time he reaches the end of the Moshal, and Rashi only talks about throwing away the stones. So then the Maharal has an explanation in Gur Arya, and he says, He's talking about why it is that the Pasuk now no longer discusses Esav anymore. Once the Torah starts to speak about Yaakov, Esav disappears from the radar. We don't hear about him again in Chumash. Because anything else of the details of Esav, his dynasty, his legacy, the way his descendants lived, etc., is irrelevant to Yaakov's story. And therefore, they're like stones, you throw them away, you don't need them, they're just going to get in the way. And in fact, says the Maharal, that's why they're called stones. Unlike the diamond which might be caught up inside the sand and, and kind of hidden in the sand, stones and diamonds, they'll never mix, they'll just sit next to each other. So whatever stories there are of Esau's later descendants, they have no bearing and no involvement in Yaakov's story. There is no mixing possible between the diamond and the stones, only between the diamond and the sand. So therefore, we, that's it, we're done. We discard Asa from this time and on because it's not relevant to the story. That's the Maharal. The Rebbe is not entirely satisfied with that. Because this explanation leaves us with some questions, namely, 
No, if Lazar should appear Rosha in Kol Chidush Binyan Rashli Chesat Zoros. Okay, so what's the, what's Rashi then telling us about throwing away the stones? That isn't self-explanatory. Obviously, you're done with Esav. If you move on, the fact that once the pasuk starts to discuss Yaakov and doesn't go back to Esav, that's already explained by the beginning of the mashal. <laughs> if you've looked through the sand and now you found the diamond, why would you engage the sand anymore? It's, it's logical. The king only play, makes his way through the sand until he finds the diamond. So that's self-explanatory. Why do I now need to call Aesop Tsuroyos to know that you're not going to pay attention to him anymore? But besides that, Harry, the but the way that the Maharal is explaining it over here, that means even before you find the diamonds, you shouldn't be looking through the stones, because stones have nothing to do with this. They could never mix with the diamonds at all. Because the, the diamond could never mix with the stones in the first place. It would be quite distinct from the stones. Rashi is not saying that. Rashi says, only when you find the diamond, then you throw away the stones. That implies that gives the implication that maybe the diamond is mixed together with the stones, which is difficult to imagine. It's difficult to visualize how that is actually possible. And in fact, the Medrash also seems to say the same thing. Okay, it's different to Rashi's expression, but still the Medrash says that the diamond is thrown into a mixture of sand and it's amongst the stones. And therefore the fashvesh be offer uvitzroyos. Therefore the king, while searching for the diamond, has to go through not only the sand, but the stones as well. So... It's not simple just to say, now that we reach this point that you have the diamond, we no longer need the stones, we need, no longer need to talk about Esau, there's got to be more to it. So, the entire explanation hinges on a very intriguing insight, which is, this is not just a story about Yaakov and Esau back then, but actually it's a template for our understanding of the whole purpose of being Jewish. When we talk about the settling of Yaakov, we're not talking about just him and his family living in Eretz Yisrael then. Hello, rather we're talking about Pishoma Yaakov the Esav. Yaakov himself told Esav in the beginning of Ayishlach, he says, Ad asher avoy al Adoni Seira. That this is a long-term journey until such time as we meet up again. Where in Seir? Meaning, Asher Kavonu Bozeki Firish Rashi. Rashi explains what Yaakov meant. He meant to tell him, Kiyum Ayud v'mei HaMashiach v'olom Yishim b'atzin rishbetasar Esav. That already then Yaakov was telling Esav, guess when we're going to meet up? Guess when this great so-called reunion is going to happen? When it's Volom Moshim Baratzian, when we have the prophecy of the time of Moshiach. We're not just talking now about how Yaakov and his family were going to settle in Eretz Yisrael then. We're talking about the entire history of the Jewish people until the coming of Moshiach. And this is what the diamond Moshal is supposed to illustrate. We're not discussing just Yaakov and his family in their context of where they live. Because as we already mentioned before, it's not like Yaakov and his story is hidden inside Esav's story. It's two parallel stories. Esav's going that direction, Yaakov's going that direction. Where's this Tumunim Bachoil? Where's the diamond hidden inside the sand? You don't see it in their story. 
אלא השלימוס התכלי שאלה צורך יעקב לבוא ראדה דה תראה ויהיה דסקרייבינג דה אלטמט אספיריישן אוף יעקב אין דה ג'ויש פיפל אבוי גוימר סעירה טו ריץ' דה פוינט דה וויקאם טו אינטרפייס וויט אין אינטראקט וויט אייסוב וויי אין סייר אין דה טיים אוף משיח וכיוון שזה מוסק דווקא על ידי האבוידה, אם יש לו פיבט, יש לו ביג חאפ, how do you get to משיח? you've got to work עם וביישובי אייסוב ותולדויסוב כדלקמון. the only route to משיח goes through the land of אייסוב and through engagement with אייסוב, which we'll explain during the course of the שיחה. נינצ'טחלס ושלימוס יעקב תמונו באייסוב. that's what we mean when we say that the goal, purpose, objective of Yaakov is where hidden inside Esau because the void of Yaakov is going to take him on a journey through the world of Esau, through the reality of Esau and from there you get the diamond. And that's what Rashi is alluding to over here. For Zeh Yuvan Masha Kosen Moines Yishuv Esau Vatoldo Esau Malchei Edom Ad Melech Hadar Shalim Emei Shaul Now we get it, now we understand why the Torah at this point in time gives us a pre... an insight into what's still going to happen in history all the way to the King Hadar who lived... just by the time of Shaul HaMelech, Mipnei Sheshol Hoi Mashiach Hashem, because Shaul was like an ultimate king, the so-called anointed of Hashem, V'ilu Zochu, Zochu, if the Yidin had, and if Shaul had had the schus at the time, Hoi Miskayim Al Yodei HaKosov Ali Mashiach HaTzinish V'zari, so that could have been the time of Mashiach right then. Could have happened then, if the Yidin had deserved it. If Shaul HaMelech hadn't necessarily uh, made the wrong decision around Amalek. So what we're seeing over here is that the search for the diamond in the sand is a search for the goal of Moshiach in the world of Esav. So this will give us insight. Firstly, we'll explain why it is that this particular Moshal is a Moshal of sand and stones. Both of those things are relevant. What are we talking about? One day we get to judge Esau, which means to transform Esau, which means to elevate Esau. And there are two ways to do that. There's two ways to get there. There is the Afar root and the Tzrodois root, the sand root and the stone root, meaning... The one root is where Esau becomes refined and elevated. As will happen to many nations, that they will be transformed into positive nations in the time of Mashiach. As the Apostlech says, That Hashem is going to convert the language of many nations, that they will all call out to Hashem, and they will all serve Hashem in a united front. like the Mamre Chazal that the Alter Rebbe quotes about one day the Chazer is going to become kosher. As we well know, the Chazer is a symbol of Esau, which is a symbol of Edom, that one day will become purified. So the one path towards so-called rescuing or vanquishing Esau is to transform Esau and to elevate Esau, that Esau becomes part of the world of Kedusha, as opposed to where Esau is by default in the world of Klippa. But then there's part of Esau that can never be uh, released, never be redeemed. There is part of Esau that has to be destroyed. Amalek. It has no alternative. It has no path to rescue. There is no uh, salvation. It's got to be destroyed. Like the other Pesach says, that it says Yaakov will be like fire. Yosef will be the flame. Esau will be the straw. Sorry, and it will be completely consumed in fire with no survivors. So there's two parts of Esau that need two different kinds of treatment. The majority of Esau can, um, can be rehabilitated, and part of Esau has to be completely destroyed. Now that's sand and stones.
برای زبه دو کنم شنه هایان دافر سرایرس آفر و داور امالیم و مستر و سند is something that will cover up whatever is underneath it and hide it completely و کمای بینیانه این آشه آفر مخصه و مستر ساما گولی ساکی نه ماشل the sand hides the diamond اخلا این را گامور that doesn't mean that the sand is automatically something bad and evil You could transform the sand into something positive. You could actually benefit from the sand. Like famously we say, even though klipa is klipa, it blocks you from access to the fruit, but it protects the fruit. And it uh, allows the fruit to grow without harm. Like it says in the time of Moshiach, what will happen is that strangers, people who are not part of the Jewish world, will become the protectors of the Jewish people and they'll do our heavy lifting for us. So sand hides the diamond but isn't poison. But stones, not only do stones conceal what's underneath them, they are potentially damaging elements, shrapnel. Like we often find in the Gemara, especially in Bavakama, where it talks about different kinds of damage that could happen by or compared to stone. And therefore, you've got to get rid of them. These pebbles, they can only cause damage. So sand gets in the way, but it could be positive if used appropriately. And stones get in the way and could cause damage. You actually have to get them out of the way. When will Yaakov achieve his objective? In other words, when will Yaakov get the diamond? That will happen when the promise that the Navi gave to Rivka when she was still pregnant will come to fruition. Namely, Verav, the great or more powerful of the twins, will serve the smaller, the younger of the twins. How will that happen? That will happen through this refinement of Har Esau. Now we need to understand why is this the setup in the first place? Why is Esau the Rav? Why is Esau the stronger? Why is Esau the Bechor? Why does Yaakov have to work through this lengthy process of trying to turn Esau around? Why is Esau not already where he should be? So to understand that, we have to examine why, from a, a deeper spiritual perspective, is Esau the Rav. Esau is the powerful one. And why is it that in order for Yaakov to reach his perfection, he needs Esau to come on board? Why can't Yaakov do it on his own? It's something which we can understand based on a principle Hasidus talks about why it is that humans, which are the apex of creation, relies completely on lower life forms in order to survive. For a human to survive, he has to have animals, plants, soil. And only then can the human do what the human has to do. It's a bit ironic, don't you think? Here you've got a very developed creature that requires far less developed creatures in order to survive. Likewise, the fact that the Tso'ir, the smaller of the two brothers, should be able to survive is because there's something about the other brother that is rough, something of value that the other brother adds that the younger brother couldn't have on his own. So Yaakov needs certain things from Esau that Yaakov doesn't have on his own. What does Esau have that Yaakov doesn't have? We're taught that the spiritual source Esav originates from is higher and more powerful than the spiritual source that Yaakov originates from. That's why Esav turns into the Bechor. He's actually the firstborn, meaning to say he comes from a primary source of energy. 
explained in great detail in Hasidus and in Kabbalah that basically Esav comes from the realm of Tohu, which is a place of incredible spiritual power, incredible divine energy. It just has the potential to be totally un, uh, unguided and, and, and um, uncontrolled, and so it could turn into Esav. But it's a place of original power, as opposed to Yaakov, it comes from a place where everything is very functional, but it is also less dynamic. So, so, so and therefore, validate So when Yaakov engages with Asab, who embedded deep inside of himself has these energy centers of huge toyu, powerful divine energy, and Yaakov's able to key into that and extract it out of Asab and reconnect it to its original spiritual source. That elevates not only Esav, who was lost and is now being reconnected, but it elevates Yaakov as well, who now is able to tap into a source that is higher than his own spiritual source. And that brings Yaakov to his own perfection. And that's a reason why, in addition to what we already explained before, that you have to know the king's of, uh, of Esav in order to know the power of Shola Melech, that he had the potential to become Moshiach, there's more to it. Why do we need to know about all the details of the kings of Esav? Because it's showing us a little bit of chronology over here, spiritual chronology, which shows that Esav's power precedes Yaakov's power. And therefore, if Yaakov is able to key into that power, he could catapult himself higher than where he is or could achieve on his own accord. To use the language of the Zayar, that the kings of Edom, they originate in what is called the initial or the primal kings of Toyu. In other words, very, very lofty energies of, of divine energy. Which is why they historically actually were kings before the Jewish kings, because they originate from a spiritual energy that exists before the spiritual energy of the Jewish people. Because their spiritual source is higher than and therefore precedes the spiritual source of Tikkun known as Yaakov. In other words, in simple language, Esav is a complete wild person, but Esav has an umbilical cord that links him to a very deep, profound spiritual energy that if we could capitalize on, we could get it to become spiritually dynamic in a way that, that we had never experienced on our own. So that's the goal. The goal of Yaakov is to work through Esau and find the value in Esau and elevate Esau. And through that, Yaakov achieves his goals and aspirations, purpose, his purpose. Now that has a practical application for us. It has a practical application for us as Jews through the course of Golas. Why did Hashem throw us into Golas, which is a tremendous spiritual backslide for us? And especially the current Golas, which is so long and difficult, the Golas of Edom, represented in our parashios as where Esau lives and thrives. Why? So that we'd have the opportunity to get in touch with all these powerful centers of potential holiness that are embedded throughout the physical world to get them, refine them, and elevate them. Which would then raise our own neshamas higher than their point of origin. 
for a fascinating reason because the spiritual origin of these sparks of holiness comes from the world of Toyo, which is higher than the spiritual origin of my own neshama. So I get elevated by engaging the physical world and extracting the holiness out of it and elevating it. So how do we do that? So the marshal that the Chazal give us of the king going through the sand and the stones in order to get the diamond is in, in effect the template for how you go about releasing these sparks of holiness and thereby elevating the world and elevating your neshama. So to continue the Moshal right through, that each diamond, it's now not a single diamond, now it's a whole lot of diamonds. Every diamond represents one of those energy centers of toyu holiness that is stuck, hidden somewhere in the world, waiting for somebody to find and rescue it. And of course, um, the two kinds of of places where this diamond is hidden, the sand and the stones represent the two different ways that we engage with the physical world. There is sand. Those are the physical things that, by their very nature, they just hide away the holiness from us. But they hide the holiness. They don't destroy or interfere with the holiness. Therefore, so you go through the sand, that's what we're supposed to do. You go through the sand of the food that you eat and the business that you do until such time as you find the holiness within and you extract that holiness and elevate it to Kedusha. That's what we're supposed to do. But then you also encounter sometimes stones. Stones are the things that are completely trafe. They're off the charts. There's nothing you can do with them. You cannot elevate them. There is no way through ordinary that you can actually extract the holiness from these stories, from these stones. They also might have diamonds hidden inside of them. They might have sparks of holiness. Because otherwise, how could they possibly survive? Nothing can survive without being plugged into Kedusha. It's just that the holiness inside these things is completely off balance. It's in a vault and we don't have the code. So the only way we engage with that part of the world is arm's length. That's strafe. It's not allowed. Stay away. Now let's say that you do get to that spark of Kedusha. Now you've done your avoid and you've got the holiness. Before you can engage the holiness, you have to be reminded now that you've reached the spark of holiness, put aside the sand. Which practically means that a person has to reach a conscious state of saying the physical in and of itself has no value. The value of the physical was the holiness embedded inside it. Why did I get involved in business? Why did I get involved in this meal that I'm eating? Only to get the Kedusha inside of it. The meal has no value. The money has no value. That's why it wasn't good enough just to say, get the diamond and focus on the diamond. That's why the Medrash told us very clearly that the getting rid of the sand is part of how you get to the diamond. As long as physical things still hold value to a person, your first problem is going to be, well, if you value the physical too much, how will you get the Nitzotis of Kedusha out of the physical? 
You don't want to let go of the physical. And he said to me, so more than that, he talked in But more scary than that is, if the physical world is something I really care about, then my engagement in the physical world, even with the best intentions, could suck me down. Only specifically when eating, drinking, and all other physical engagement. He's with an attitude that the physical's got to go. The physical in and of itself has to go. Then you're in a position that you could actually properly extract, refine, and elevate the sparks. And that elevates your neshama. It's a very deep thought for a person to consider. With that information, we can go back to what Rashi said and why he said it slightly differently to the Medrash. Because Rashi, as we well know, doesn't always just tell us the Pshat. He always tells us the wine, the the Geshmak of Torah, the depth of Torah, the Primius of Torah. And in this particular case, he's actually spelling out for us the relevant steps, the specific steps that are required in order for a person to extract and elevate the Nitzotzes of Kedusha. As we already mentioned, where is the main arena in which we work to elevate holiness? The world of sand, that which hides but doesn't interfere with Kedusha. We're not primarily focused on the stones because as we already mentioned, the stones is an arena where we generally cannot extract the holiness. That's why Rashi doesn't talk about the stones in the beginning. He talks about sifting through the sand. Which means, you've got to feel around, which means, you've got to work your way through with Seichel, through this environment where there's Nitzotzes are, which is in the sand. The diamond is in the sand. And don't go looking in the stones because that's a place where the diamonds are difficult and near impossible and off limits for us to try and extract. So make sure you're looking in the right place. So Rashi only talks about sand in the beginning. He doesn't talk about stones because you shouldn't go to the stones. But later on in the process, when you've had a positive impact on the choil, on the physical world around you, and you have extracted the holiness, so initially, when you extract the holiness, it doesn't automatically separate into holy and mundane. It's all one big mush. And therefore, you actually have to work one step further, not just to identify that there is holy potential, but to separate it from that which is purely mundane and will remain such. So Rashi says, you've got to sift with a sieve. Which is avoided to make a clear, obvious distinction between that which is holy and unholy. Until you're able to completely extract the diamond, that it has no further association with the choil, no further association with the sand. And then once you've done that, you've done these two key steps. You have elevated, you've identified the spark of holiness and started to work to extract it and then made a clear distinction between the, 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 the uh, choil and the margolis between that which is mundane and that which is holy, now you've got to be very careful. Once you find the diamond, be sure to throw away the stones. 
Whatever negative you have now siphoned off from the holiness, get rid of it. Don't allow it to stay around. At this point in time, some of the sand has turned into tsuroros. When you were looking for the diamond, the sand was just sand. It was innocent. It was uh, just in the way. But once you've now clearly defined, this is where the holiness lies, and the other stuff is just mundane, mundane is now trafe. Get rid of it. It's no longer part of the process. As long as you haven't successfully yet separated the good from the bad. Then everything in your physical experience was part of the sand reality. It was purely just an impediment, an aberration that got in the way of the spiritual or the holy. But then when you go through a proper distinguishing process, a sifting process, and now you can make a clear distinction between that which is good spiritually and that which is bad spiritually. It redefines the nature of what previously was just innocuous sand and now is interfering stone or pebbles. They are now the peels that have been discarded because you've removed the fruit. They have no value anymore. Get rid of them. What does it mean in practical terms? The only way a person, as a Jewish person, can successfully achieve our avoider, which is to extract the holiness out of the physical of this world, is our approach to the physical of the world has to be what is physical. Physical is not only something that has no real value, that obviously you reach a point you say, I don't need it anymore because it has no value. It's a person, a Jewish person, has to approach the world to know that a part of the world that has no spiritual value is a stone that can hurt you. So therefore, as soon as you discover the, 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 the diamond, then you've got to throw as far as you can the physicality of this world, which is now stone. And only that will allow you the opportunity to truly chap the diamond without any extraneous connections. And Meloshan Chazal, as the expression goes about Rabbi Meir, when he learned from Acher, he knew what to eat, which was healthy, and he knew what to throw. It's almost as if to say, knowing what to discard allows you to eat what you have to eat. Knowing what cannot be part of the process allows you to actually experience the diamond for real. Now this overarching principle of elevating the world and finding sparks of holiness and bringing them to Kedusha really started in earnest in the time of Yaakov Avinu. It started right from Avram Avinu, but in earnest through Yaakov Avinu. Because at the time of Yaakov, that's when the real pro- pre- uh, preparation started for getting the Torah. And a good piece of evidence to that is that the key to getting the Torah was to go through the Kur HaBarzel, the furnace of Mitzrayim, and that began when Yaakov and his family went down to Mitzrayim. So if we really want to understand the power of elevating the world, Matan Torah plays an incredibly significant role. Because Matan Torah changes everything. How so? The big shift that happened at the time of the giving of the Torah is 
to bring into the world a dimension of godliness that is fundamentally beyond the world. Only when you introduce into our world godliness that is beyond the world, only then can you truly get rid of the tzroyos and truly get the diamond. Why? If I'm talking about a degree, an element of divine energy, which is relative to the world and therefore is enveloped in the world, from that perspective, the world exists and it, it has to be considered. Now, in order to throw away, to cast aside the physicality of the world, which initially was just sand, but then once you discover the diamond, it actually becomes completely irrelevant. To be able to throw it away completely, you have to stand from a perspective that says the world is nothing. So the godliness that runs the world on a day-to-day basis cannot say the world is nothing because its job is to keep the world going. So only when you're looking from the vantage point of godliness, which is fundamentally beyond the world, and therefore the world means nothing at that level, that's when you can truly fulfill your avoider, which is to get rid of the physical and focus completely on the sparks of holiness. That's why Rashi only brought this muscle of sifting through the sand to get the diamond now with regards to Yaakov. It was not a relevant muscle when discussing all those generations that had to be passed through in order to find the great Noach and all those generations that had to be passed through in order to find the great Avram. It's not the same. Even though both Noach and Avram had a degree of elevating holiness from within the, the physical world, Noach elevated the ten generations that preceded him. Avram Avinu certainly and even in a greater level. Still, neither one of them reached the point where the Biru refinement of the world was so extreme that the world becomes disposable. Which means even after all of their efforts, the world, as a world, still had some value. And nevertheless, Rashi does allude to the fact that Noach was this diamond relative to his generations and Avram to his. Why does Rashi do that? To allude to the fact that Yaakov could not have worked in a vacuum. He needed the precedent of Noach's avoider, which we'll discuss in a second, and Avram's avoider, which took it even to a higher level. And only after that can you get to Yaakov's avoider. What did Noyach do? Noyach translated the reality of the world to be a different place. Before Noyach arrived on the scene, what was the reality of the world? It was a place of complete um, immoral behavior. Noyach brought about a world that has rules. He saw that there's a new world, a new way to run the world, a new way to live. And that's why Hashem is able to make a covenant with Noach that the world should sustain. The seasons won't get wrecked. The world won't get destroyed. Why? Because Noach brought a sense of law and order to the world. So that's some level of refinement. The world is now no longer chaos 
and, and lack of morality. Achidus to Avraham Avinu, how you Avraham Avinu takes it to a whole different level, not just a set of rules that we have to follow, but Gilu Yerekus Be'olam. He creates awareness of Hashem right across the world. Vayikrasham Hashem Avaya Kel Olam. He creates awareness of Hashem everywhere. We could explain it this way. Avraham Avinu was able to take what Noach had introduced, which is Sheba Mitzvahs B'nei Noach, and teach people, you don't just keep those Sheba Mitzvahs because it's logical, you need something to keep a society sane and healthy. And He revealed to people, you do these things because Hashem said so. It's a huge shift. Through those two steps, Noach making the world a moral place, and Avram making the world a place of godly awareness, now you can get to Yaakov's impact, to prepare the world for the huge revolution of the giving of the Torah, which is, not only like Avram Avinu, who could create awareness of Hashem in the world, but to bring into the world a godliness which is fundamentally beyond the world, which would cause the true elevation and refinement of our world. So as this applies, obviously, in our avoida, as we have discussed it, every single one of us has to approach the world and understand that the world we're looking at is sand. And we have to see beyond the sand until such time as we find the diamond. Then we have to extract the diamond. And once we get that, we have to throw away the sand. Not only throw away the sand, but recognize that from that moment and on, the sand is just a, a trap. It's just an impediment. So our avoida has to be when you find the diamond, get rid of the physicality. That's on a personal level and it applies on a national level right across the span of our history. As we said earlier in the Sicha, the whole of Jewish history boils down to the idea that we as Jews have to work our way through the world and elevate the whole world wherever we go, wherever Hashem through Hashkach Pratis takes us through the process of Goddess to find that place, elevate that place, Extract the diamonds from that place. Like the Pasuk tells us that Hashem assured Avraham Avinu that the goddess Mitzrayim would not just be some kind of a painful experience, but it would give them this tremendous wealth that they'd extract afterwards, the diamonds. We're not talking over here about simple physical wealth. We're talking about these diamonds of sparks of holiness that they would extract. So therefore, the minute the time frame of Golis Mitzrayim was at, as soon as you find the diamond, straight away, you throw away the sand. That's it, you get out of Golis immediately. Because logically, there's no reason to rush. We know that they had already stopped the hard labor about a year earlier. And the Jews were living in the best place in the whole of Mitzrayim. They were living in Goshen. Why couldn't they wait another few moments, even another day? But that's exactly the message over here. This is how you refine the world. The second the diamonds are found, you without hesitation throw out the stones. This is the good news. Good news. The same thing applies to us in this final goddess. As the Pasuk says, that the Miracles we experience in the time of Mashiach will be very much like the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. 
The minute that moment comes that we've extracted all the diamonds, straight away we go out of Golos. We'll all leave all the various lands that we have been exiled into. We'll all come back to the land that Hashem watches at all times. In the ultimate and true Geula, that should happen with Hashem immediately.